Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In the early 80s, a series of savage attacks occurred in the Twin City area of Minnesota, USA. The victims were all women. Police struggled in the initial part of the investigation. There was no physical evidence left by the attacker and there were no witnesses. But there was one person who wanted to help the police, the man responsible. He called 911 after committing the attacks. The tapes were released to the public in the hopes that somebody would recognise the voice. This is how he came to be known as the Weepy Voice Killer. But was he just taunting the police? Or did he really want to be stopped? Yes, please, this is an emergency police and a squadron. on the road. Nuremberg Manufacturing Company machine shop. Please, there's an ambulance too. There's a girl hurt there. On the 31st of December 1980, university student Karen Potak was out celebrating New Year's Eve with her sisters on University Avenue in an area known as the Twin Cities in Minnesota, USA. The city of St. Paul, which is the state capital of Minnesota, is on one side of University Avenue, and the city of Minneapolis, which is the largest city in Minnesota, is on the other side of University Avenue. It was an ice cold winter's night with temperatures below freezing. After midnight had struck, Karen wandered out of the bar she was in with her sisters. She walked around the streets in the freezing cold, all alone, still drinking from a glass of champagne. She made her way up an alleyway, which was deserted other than one car which drove past her. A male driver was the only person in the car. He noticed that Karen didn't have a jacket and she looked freezing cold. The male driver stopped the car and told Karen to jump in. He had the heater on and his car was nice and warm and he could give her a ride to wherever she needed to go. The lure of a nice warm car and a free ride was too much for Karen to resist and she eagerly jumped in. About 3am that morning, the following call was made to 911. Yes, responded to the call and found Karen Potak lying on the ground near the railway tracks behind the Malmberg Manufacturing Company on Syndicate Street North, St Paul, an area that was completely deserted at night. 
Karen was naked and had been viciously beaten with a tire iron. Her skull was cracked open, but she was alive. Karen was rushed to hospital and treated. She survived the attack, but it was so vicious, it was deemed to be an attempted murder. Karen was later questioned at length by police, but she had no memory of the attack itself and no memory of who was responsible. No physical evidence was located to identify the attacker and there were no witnesses at all. With Karen unable to provide police with any information, the case went cold very quickly and nobody was arrested. 18-year-old Kimberly Compton was from the small town of Pepin, Wisconsin, with a population of less than 1,000 people. After graduating from high school, Kimberly packed her bags and got on a bus headed for Minnesota's capital city, St. Paul. Like so many other small town high school graduates before and after her, she couldn't wait to leave and start the next chapter of her life in the city. On the 3rd of June 1981, Kimberly stepped off her Greyhound bus in downtown St. Paul. She hired locker number 750 in the Greyhound bus depot, where she placed both of her bags. The first thing Kimberly wanted to do was to eat. She was starving, and she was in luck. Directly across the road from the bus depot was Mickey's Diner. They had a special on too, barbecue beef and fries, and that's what Kimberly ordered. She sat down in a booth to eat, and sitting a few booths away from her was a man also enjoying a meal. He noticed Kimberly sitting alone, and he walked over and struck up a conversation with her. Kimberly told him she had only just arrived to the city and didn't know her way around yet. The man was only too happy to offer to drive Kimberly around and show her the sights of St Paul. Kimberly eagerly accepted. She couldn't wait to explore the city and was happy that she had a local to help show her around. Kimberly and her new friend finished their meals and then left Mickey's diner together. A few hours later, the following call was made to 911. You find me, I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. Hello? Are you there? Police responded and found Kimberly Compton laying face down near an unfinished freeway just south of St Paul. It was a secluded area where you could catch a nice view of the Mississippi River. The killer had driven Kimberly there and then used the promise of that nice view to lure Kimberly out of the car. She was then savagely attacked. Kimberly was stabbed 61 times with a nice pick and was dead when police arrived. Kimberly couldn't wait to graduate high school and leave the small town of Pepin behind her. But only hours after leaving and arriving in St Paul, she had been brutally murdered. Kimberly had no identification on her, but police found her Greyhound bus depot locker key. They found her locker and her bags, and that's how the initial identification was done. The autopsy showed an undigested meal in her stomach, which is how police were able to piece together her movements. They knew that Mickey's diner was across the road from the bus depot, and when they saw the special they had that night that Kimberly arrived in town match what was in her stomach, they were able to piece her movements together. They immediately interviewed the staff of Mickey's Diner and appealed for anybody who may have seen Kimberly to come forward. But they couldn't find any witnesses that progressed the investigation any further. There were no suspects, 
No physical evidence. The investigation stalled. But not before the killer made another call to 911. released the 911 call to the media. It was hoped that somebody would recognise the voice. The media nicknamed him the weepy voiced killer. The response was overwhelming. Everybody seemed to think the voice matched somebody that they knew. Over a hundred names were provided to the police, but unfortunately it all amounted to nothing. The release of the calls got them no closer to identifying a suspect. And with no evidence and no witnesses, the case started getting colder and colder. About nine months after the murder, on March 19th, 1982, there was this news report from KSTP Eyewitness News. Police thought they may have had a breakthrough. Locally tonight, St. Paul police are disappointed. They thought they were close to solving one of the city's murders, but new information has sent the police back to square one in the murder case of Kimberly Compton. That information came to light when police took a rare step and opened their files to the media. Lindsay Strand has more on the story. Retired St. Paul Detective Earl Mills returned to the force for one day this week to open the files of his seven-month investigation to the media. He said he was convinced information received four days after he retired last February answered the question of who killed Kimberly Compton. Mills believed it was Alan Lopez, indicted for killing his parents and sister at their St. Paul home last August. Found mentally incompetent to stand trial, Lopez was sent to the state security hospital in St. Peter, where he committed suicide before police could talk to him. But while barricaded inside his family's house last summer, he had confessed to killing Compton. Police, however, had ruled him out as a suspect because they linked the Compton murder to another case they didn't believe Lopez could have committed. The link was in taped telephone calls to police. Kimberly Compton's body was discovered last June along an unfinished portion of 35E, only three and a half hours after she arrived in town by bus. The report then plays the 911 voice recordings relating to Kimberly Compton's murder. They then link the case to the attempted murder of Karen Potak and play that 911 recording. The news report then continues. Arriving at the location the caller described, police found Karen Potak, badly beaten but still alive. Police didn't think Lopez could have committed the attack because they thought he was in the Anoka State Hospital that night. But just five weeks ago, Mills learned that Lopez was granted a pass to leave the hospital the day Potak was assaulted. And that information made him confident Lopez attacked both women. Based on the telephone calls we received, his uh, vicious nature with his family, the fact that he was not in uh, an institution, public institution at the time of uh, either of the cases. 
But information obtained by the media and the new investigator on the case has shattered Mills' theory. One phone call to the Ramsey County Jail determined that while Lopez may have been out of the state hospital the night that Potek was attacked, he was in the Ramsey County Jail the night Kimberly Compton was murdered, clearly ruling him out as a suspect in the case and sending police back to square one in their investigation. Police Chief William McCutcheon refused to comment directly on the quality of the investigation, but said the quality of future investigations should be improved by a recent departmental reorganization. Lindsey Strand, Channel 5 Eyewitness News, St. Paul. And square one of the investigation is exactly where police remained. As the months went on, new cases came in and Kimberly's case got less and less attention before it was eventually placed on the cold case shelf where it was barely touched. On the 6th of August 1982, 40-year-old Barbara Simons was having a night out at the Hexagon Bar in Minneapolis. Barbara was having fun up on the dance floor, dancing and drinking with a man she had just met that night. At one point when she was ordering a drink, she mentioned to the waitress that she hoped the man she had met was a nice guy because he was going to give her a ride home. Later that night, the waitress saw them leaving the bar together. And then another phone call was made to 911. Fire emergency. Please don't talk to this person. I'm sorry, I killed my camera. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one on my face. Oh, I don't know what's the matter, man. I'm going to kill myself, I think. Police later located the body of Barbara Simons caught on the underbrush down an embankment of the Mississippi River in Minneapolis. The killer had tried to dispose of her body in the river, but the underbrush stopped that from happening. Barbara had been stabbed around a hundred times. It was evident there was now a serial killer at work. Police traced Barbara's movements on the night of her death, and that eventually led them back to the Hexagon Bar and to an interview with a waitress who saw her dancing with an unknown man. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Police showed the waitress several mug books in the hopes she would be able to identify the man she saw Barbara with. The waitress looked through over 100 photos before the police were in luck. She picked out the man she saw with Barbara. This was a huge break in the investigation. Police immediately organised for a surveillance team to closely follow their new suspect. 
Soon after, on the 20th of August, 1982, 19-year-old prostitute Denise Williams was working the red light district of Minneapolis. Denise had been a prostitute since she was 13 years old. A car pulled up to Denise. The male driver started chatting to her and they came to an agreement. The male offered her $100 to have some fun. But he only had $40 on him at the time. He promised to pay her the other 60 later. Denise agreed and got into his car. They went back to his apartment in St. Paul where they had sex. It was over very quickly and Denise started wondering if the man was going to want more. But he didn't and he offered to drive Denise back to her corner. On the way back to the red light district, the man veered off the main road and started taking some back streets. The man said he was taking a shortcut. But Denise started to get uneasy. She knew the area and knew this wasn't a shortcut. She started to look around for a weapon and was in luck when she spotted a bottle close by. Denise decided that if the man tried anything, she would whack him in the head with the bottle. The man pulled into a dark, dead-end parking lot near Coolidge Avenue in Minneapolis. There was no street lighting at all. When they stopped, the man said to Denise, "Ass, grass or gas. No one rides for free. Denise tried to get out of the car, but the man grabbed her left arm and then stabbed her in the stomach with a screwdriver. Denise reacted by hitting him in the head with a glass bottle, causing it to smash. She hit him a few more times with a broken bottle. He started bleeding everywhere. He was cut up pretty bad on the cheek, head and hand. But that didn't stop him. He kept trying to stab Denise over and over again. She reacted by trying to punch, kick and bite him. She fought as fiercely as she could. Denise eventually managed to open the door and fell out onto the ground. The male fell on top of her. Denise decided to change tactics and she stopped fighting altogether. She played dead. She said, I'm dying, I'm dying, and lay completely still. But that didn't work. The man kept stabbing her. Denise screamed for help and a nearby resident, Douglas Panning, heard her screams. He made his way outside and saw the attacker on top of Denise, still stabbing her. Panning ran up and grabbed him. The attacker jumped up and then immediately swung the screwdriver at Panning. Panning ran away, but the attacker gave chase. Luckily, Panning was able to make his way back inside his unit and call the police. The attacker gave up, jumped back into his car and drove off. He was badly cut up and injured. Panning went back outside to help Denise. Denise had been stabbed 15 times. She had wounds on her chest, abdomen and head as well as a punctured lung and a punctured liver. She was rushed to hospital where she had emergency surgery. Despite being badly hurt, Denise survived the attack. Denise initially gave her name as Mary, as she was aware there was a warrant out for her arrest for a probation violation. She also told the police she had been hitchhiking when she was attacked. But Denise later came clean and told the truth. That same night, shortly after the attack on Denise, another call was made to 911. We're here in Ambulance. Where? 1505 West Minister. 1505 
Yeah. Westminster, what's the problem? I'm all cut up. I got beat up. What's your apartment number? 208, I bleed. 208, where are you bleeding from? From my arm, my face, my head. Paramedics were dispatched to the address. Police were called as well. There they found 37-year-old Paul Stefani, the man picked out in the mug book by the waitress at the Hexagon Bar, the man who police had a surveillance operation on. But earlier that night, just before making his way to the red light district, Stefani had lost the police tail, leaving him free to attack Denise Williams. Luckily, she survived. Stefani was arrested, and Denise easily picked him out as her attacker from the mugshots. Stefani was charged with her attempted murder. Paul Stefani was born on the 8th of September 1944 and grew up in Austin, Minnesota. He was brought up in a deeply religious household. He had a history of psychiatric problems and one previous conviction for aggravated assault, which is why his photo was in the mug book. He worked as a janitor and lived by himself. In March 1977, Stefani was fired from his job at the Malmberg Manufacturing Plant, so he was familiar with the area where Karen Potak was attacked and was well aware how quiet and isolated the spot would be at night. Police interviewed him about the attack on Karen Potak and the murders of Kimberly Compton and Barbara Simons. They showed him crime scene photos from all three attacks. Stefani looked at them and said, you're not going to pin those on me. He denied any involvement in the crimes and denied being the weepy voice killer. Along with the attempted murder of Denise Williams, Stefani was charged with the murder of Barbara Simons. These attacks occurred in Minneapolis, a different jurisdiction to the attacks on Karen Potak and Kimberly Compton. Those happened in St Paul. Stefani pled not guilty to the murder of Barbara Simons, and the six-week trial commenced in February 1985. The prosecution case relied on matching the 911 calls made after Barbara Simons' attack and after Denise Williams' attack to the voice of Stefani. An audio interview conducted with Stefani shortly after his arrest was used to try and make the match. The experts that were called in concluded that the voice of Stefani was remarkably similar to the 911 calls but they could not conclusively say they were an exact match. That's when Stefani's sister was called to the stand to testify. She listened to the 911 tapes. She then bowed her head and said that she had no doubt those calls were made by her brother. After a six-week trial, Stefani was eventually found guilty and sentenced to 40 years in jail for the murder of Simons. Stefani also pled not guilty to the attempted murder of Denise Williams. That also went to trial, but he was eventually convicted and sentenced to 18 years in jail. So with these results, you're now thinking that prosecutors in the jurisdiction of St Paul would jump on board and get to work charging Stefani for the attempted murder of Karen Potak and the murder of Kimberly Compton. Well, you're wrong. Prosecutors stated the voice evidence was not enough and they were unable to pursue a conviction against Stefani for those attacks. Instead, they elected to leave them officially unsolved, giving Karen and the family of Kimberley no closure. In 1997, 12 years later, 
Stefani got in contact with the St Paul Police. He had just been diagnosed with terminal cancer and he wanted to talk to somebody and clear the slate. St Paul Police went and met up with Stefani and conducted an interview with him. He confessed to the attempted murder of Karen Potak. She got in my car and I gave him my driving license. He would be out in a minute. I'd drive and clean some of the ice off the windshield. Do you remember where you hit her with the tire? Did you hit her one time, two times? No, nothing about 30 times. I mean, I did about 20 times. I mean, I don't know. Were you swinging it this way or did you poke her with it? Or did oh, you I, I don't think I poked her. No. I remember it was just hitting her mini on the forehead, on the cheek, and the jaw, the mouth. And the top of the head. I think it was only about 10 times. Then I know you must really be hurting when I was in a steel bar like that. I was even hurt when I went back to the car. Oh, there's one like this. I mean, and that's when I made me want to go to the phone. I mean, I really wanted to help her. My mind started clearing up. What are you doing? You have a chance to make another friend like the other one I was saw. You like to make friends. And to the murder of Kimberly Compton. And then that's when she started telling me where she was from, and uh, Wisconsin and all that. And I says, I'll say, why don't you, uh, I'm not even thinking about her right now. I said, hey, why don't you let me show you downtown? I said, yeah, I want to show you something. I really have a nice view over here. I mean, you see the nice river. I think I met somebody who probably have something to tell your parents about then. Uh, as I walk out of the car, I carried my knife with me. I had every intention to hurt her. We lay down in the grass, and I remember opening up a bra and a uh, bra, and I was you know, just feeling it. And it just starts happening. Detectives got a shock when Stefani confessed to another murder that he wasn't even on the radar for. 33-year-old Kathleen Greening was drowned in a bathtub at her home on the 21st of July, 1982, only a few weeks before the murder of Barbara Simons. Did you both get into the tub? Yes. And you're you positive about that? Yes. Because, I mean, when I, I remember when I pushed her head under the water, I could see her face. Did you push her head by her? Push her head down, or did you push her chest area under the water? Or? I held her shoulders down. You held her shoulders down? Yeah. Both hands then? Detectives found the cold case file for Kathleen Greening's murder. Going through the file, they found an address book belonging to her that had been taken as evidence. In the book was a name Paul S. with a telephone number. They matched that telephone number to the one Stefani gave the night he was arrested for Denise Williams' attack. It never came out what their relation was prior to the attack or why his number was in her address book. But finally, justice had been done. For Karen Potak, Kimberly Compton, and now Kathleen Greening. The prosecutor who secured the conviction for the murder of Barbara Simons doesn't believe Stefani enjoyed or relished in committing murder. He felt guilty for what he had done and wanted to be stopped. That's why he made the 911 calls. But he couldn't stop himself. And when he was eventually caught, he couldn't even admit to what he had done. In Stefani's words, killing seemed to be the thing you were supposed to do that was part of life. Until he actually did it. Killing was 
seemed to be the thing he was supposed to do. That was part of life. Driving the car was part of life. Eating food was part of life. To me, it seemed like killing was part of life. Until I did it, then I drove away, and then I looked like the one on first on the road. What are you doing? And then I, I just couldn't turn myself in. That's why I kept getting on the phone. Will you catch me and stop me? I will catch me or something. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. $15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.